A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Imagine Murph. We're in Rio 2016. Mm-hmm. Team oh, yeah. Ireland step good. Team Ireland step on top of the podium to collect their gold medals. Yeah, okay. Robbie Henshaw, Keith Earls, two Carnies, Simon Zebo, 37-year-old out of retirement, Brian O'Driscoll, <laughs> and Paul Hessian. <laughs> I could I could actually see that. Paul Hessian, he could do a job, couldn't They're he? Ireland's all-star men's rugby sevens team and they've just conquered the world. Mm. I can actually imagine that. Um, I don't know that Paul Hessian has ever held a rugby ball no, in anger. forget about it. Paul Hessian never played rugby, so two years wouldn't be enough time to train him to the required standards, so don't be ridiculous. It's really unrealistic. Why, why, would, you, why would you set a, plant a seed in my brain there and then just viciously ripped that seed out of the fertile soil between my two ears. Well, sure, we couldn't pick our best possible team to compete in Rio, but it looks like we're not going to be able to pick any side at all because as things stand, Ireland have no men's squad and there's no chance of one happening anytime soon, which is pretty disappointing when you think about uh, watching the Olympics in a few years' time. Yeah, and uh, this sort of thing, this is the sort of thing that might only dawn on people when they actually see, you know, countries competing for a gold medal at a sport that we're actually pretty decent at certainly we're in the top 10 we're you know one of the eight maybe founder countries of this sport and to think that we're the only what is it in the top 20 20 we're the only country in the top 20 in rugby not to have a seventh team which is just it, it, it just strikes you as bizarre, really. Yeah, money's the reason cited by the IRFU, but that hasn't stopped rugby unions in a kind of similar financial state or worse financial state, like Scotland developing seven structures. Yep. So, um, and they don't even have a, an Olympics to look forward to. It kind of seems like maybe there, maybe money might be an issue straight away, but there's actually ways for making this to wipe its own face and even better than that. Because you look at the... Uh, I would have seen a couple of the events on Sky Sports and it's a travelling roadshow around the world that gets lots and lots of fans and it's exactly the type of mm. fans that maybe rugby unions around the world are really anxious to tap into, which are young males and females who are kind of out for a good time more so than any sporting Well, event. we'll chat about it a little bit later on today's show with Alan Quinlan and former Sevens International Keena Hearn. Mount Leinster Rangers at Carlo won their first Leinster Senior Hurling Club title on Sunday. An incredible upset, Murph, I presume, at the yep. start of the year. Those boys wouldn't even have had that as a target for themselves in the Roman, yeah, would they? Yeah, you know, they, well, they were going for a three in a row in Carlo this year, and maybe they were they were drawn against the Westmeath champions, I think, in the first round this year, and maybe that would have been the 
to some of their ambitions to win a, a game in the Leinster Club Championship. Now, as it happens, they've gone on to beat Ballyboden St. Enders, who had six players who had featured in the Leinster senior final win for Dublin over Galway this year. Uh, and then they went on and beat out of the Battle of the Wexford Champions on Sunday, which is it's an extraordinary achievement. It really is, um, because the club championships is supposed to be about the way Alert de Bala did it, that you uh, you first become dominant in your own county, and then as that becomes sort of the baseline for your uh, ambitions for the year, you slowly build up to win a provincial title, and then you go on maybe and you challenge for an All-Ireland title. But what these guys have done is to just totally upset the apple cart by beating Ballyboden and then go and uh, work the Oracle again. I mean, I saw... James Hickey on the RT News yesterday, uh, one of the substitutes for Mount mm. Rangers, who uh, said the feeling around the town was just Europa, <laughs> <laughs> which I be- which I think he meant just euphoria. But nevertheless, I mean, nevertheless, I mean, I think you get the you get the you get well, the idea. Speaking of euphoria, I hate to focus once again on the commentary of the KCLR dream team of Terence Kelly and Brendan Hennessy, Murph, but. but- Obviously they, got, they yeah. obviously got extremely excited after the match and yeah. you remember in Father Ted the Golden Cleric Award and his speech where he listed everyone who'd fecked him over in the past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, this had a bit of that about it. Terrence Kelly, yeah. the best day I ever had in broadcasting. I loved every minute of it. This has been brilliant. They were afraid to play him in 2009 in the challenge match. They said they wouldn't play him. They wanted a big team from Watford. You know, they have a big team now. They came up. Wow. Martin Story stated on the paper during the week they're learning their hurling in St. Kieran's College. Not one player. Not went- one of them learning it. They're homegrown. The 15 are homegrown. The 25 or 6 are homegrown players. We didn't have to go to St. Kieran's College. I just want to say something. I don't like saying it. To all the begrudgers who didn't give them a chance. And I met a lot of lads in Kilkenny today. They didn't give them a chance. These fellas deserve respect. And I'm going to say it again. Shame on Wexford for putting Carol Hurling down. They've yeah, proved shame on him. Like one of them, Renee, he didn't vote. One yeah. of them voted against him. And I'm just saying, we know the facts. They know the facts. <laughs> and that was the time to get the facts out there. <laughs> wow. I mean, yeah, I, that. Quite as euphoric. Interesting Rhodesia reference as well there from... Uh, yeah. A country that ceased to exist <laughs> 34 years ago. Yeah, well, nevertheless, I mean, we, we, we don't know where he's talking about. Currently existing country beginning with that or... Well, I can't think of any offhand. Rwanda's sort of local. Well, you, have me, you have me there. You have me there, Rwanda. Fair well, we'll also speak to the Carlo manager, John Myler, who had an incredible weekend, not only with the win of Mount Leinster Rangers, but also his 30th wedding anniversary and his son David scoring a cracker against Liverpool, Ken. Yeah, he really, it was a great goal actually by Myler. The first shot came back to him, bad defending by Liverpool I suppose, but he took a shot, came back to him and then took a nice touch and smacked it into the bottom corner with his left foot and it was actually a really, it sounds almost demeaning to say, a a comfortable win for Hull. I mean, they were, they probably should have won the match 4-1 in the end and they really were, they absolutely destroyed Liverpool. So uh, yeah, pretty... um, Pretty uh, incredible weekend for him. Unusual choice of the, choice of the shin pad ahead of the t-shirt underneath. T-shirt the underneath. I prefer the shin pad. It's, you know, I mean, you're looking like a bit of an idiot, really, if you're running around with your t-shirt tucked under your chin. Do you ever try and do that? Run and have a t-shirt tucked under your chin. I mean, the, yeah, and you'd have a double chin in the photos as uh, well. The potential for a pratfall there is <laughs> huge. So I think I think really David's done the wise thing there. We'll speak to John about that in a bit, but before we do, we want to talk about a topic we don't discuss too often on the show, and that's the life of the sports photographer. Heroes is a new book that features the best of info sports photography. It's an agency founded 25 years ago by Billy Stickland, the great sports photographer who joins us in the studio now. How are you doing, Billy? Uh, fine, yeah. Uh, great to, uh, to be here. Was it was a kind of a strange feeling looking back over your life's work, essentially, your 25 years of your, of, of, uh, your, your work with info? Were you content after looking back over it, or was it nice going back and feeling nostalgic about different scenarios and different occasions that you've covered? Um, yeah, it was kind of interesting because it was uh, looking back over 
25 years. It's a long time. It's a kind of a bit depressing in a way that, uh, <laughs> that, that, that I've been at it that long. Um, yeah, no, but it was good to look back um, and to remember some of the moments that, uh, that had happened, uh, to see how everything had changed over the 25 years, how the sort of technology, um, how sport is viewed, the whole thing. It's really uh, it's been a bit of a journey. I've been, I worked in it for about four months now, and uh, uh, it was a bit of a relief. I think it's probably like giving birth to a child or something. So, uh, <laughs> Uh, anyway, it's out there now. So yeah, I was I was delighted. So. Was the process difficult? Just choosing the shots themselves. What ones kind of stood out most for you? Well, what what we tried to do was to try and get a balance in the book. Uh, we wanted to sort of not just do an ordinary sports book, which was simply just action shots, but photographs that showed a lot of action shots from the years, but also to put in, um, you know, features because we do a lot of features, mm. um, the sports personalities, to put a couple of pages in that were a bit different to uh, to what you'd normally get in the book, so that when people were actually looking through it, they'd say, you know, ah, wow, this is this is quite good. So that was the, that was the ob- object anyway. Talk to us how you started out first of all. How did you become inspired uh, to get into sports photography? Um, uh, love sports, uh, love photography, um, failed sports person, um, probably much the same route as any, uh, anyone who's involved in sport, like sports journalists probably take much the same route. Yeah. Um, uh, so what was yeah. your own failure in sports? Well, I, I, I loved rugby, but I was completely useless. At it. <laughs> um, you know, wanted to play rugby for Ireland, but was having difficulty getting on my school second team. So I realized the dream was over, <laughs> mm. um, but took, uh, uh, I was in St. Columbus School, then I went to Trinity, did four years there, had to come out, obviously, at the end with a degree, and wondered what I was going to do, um, and uh, uh, decided to be a teacher, um, which sounds ridiculous now, because I would have been a, an appalling teacher, um, but uh, about two weeks before I was due to start teaching, um, I met a friend of mine who was a, uh, a friend of a guy who was assistant for an advertising photographer called Dave Campbell, he was looking for a new assistant, and he said, oh, you're interested in photography, aren't you? I said, yeah, yeah. So uh, I went to see Dave Campbell um, and he gave me a job as his assistant, which is basically setting up lighting and putting stamps on envelopes and a few other things. Um, but uh, I, I had to tell the school that I wasn't going to be a teacher, which is, uh, which is great for the school <laughs> in the long run. <laughs> Pupils uh, and you, as it turned out. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so I worked for Dave Campbell for about two years. He was outstanding. He knocked the student out of me. Um, gave me um, uh, an idea about photography. It wasn't anything to do with sport. It was all to do with um, still lives, and we were shooting stuff on 10 by 8 transparency and everything, but it was really, really good grounding. Um, and uh, um, I worked for him for two years, and then after that, <clears throat> I realised I didn't really want to be an advertising photographer um, and, and brought my portfolio as such because I'd sneaked into a few sports events to Vincent Brown, who was um, editor of McGill, Mm. And he's the man who really actually got me started in, 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 in sports photography. So uh, he commissioned me to do some stuff. There was a, uh, a um, Northern Ireland were playing Israel to qualify for the World Cup in 1982. And the match was up in Windsor Park and he needed a photographer. And his normal photographer was worried about going up there because of the troubles that were up there. So he rang me and I said, yeah, geez, no problem. So <laughs> up I went. And that was the start of it. And uh, he went from McGill and on to the Sunday Tribune um, and what was innovative about uh, about Vincent in terms of of his the way he treated photographers was at that time uh, if you worked for a newspaper you you just took the photographs and they they owned everything lock stock and barrel you just took the photographs you handed in the negatives and that was the end of it but Vincent and I made an arrangement that I could keep the negatives okay. uh, and I think it was probably one of the first people to be able to do that in Ireland and that just changed everything because I had all this stuff. Um, and I mean, obviously, he could use whatever he wanted, but I still had that stuff for myself. So that my library grew, and that's where it, it mm. went from. Do you remember that experience quite vividly in Windsor Park in 1982? 
Uh, yeah, well, it was fun. Um, it, it wasn't dangerous at all. Like, I didn't see any um, problem about being up there. Um, uh, yeah. From a professional perspective, though, even, were, were you very nervous? Um, well, it wasn't the first sports event I did, but it, uh, I wouldn't have been nervous. I would have been excited. Mm. Um, um, I always find that um, the first time you go to a, a sports event um, is is really good. It's really exciting, and you sort of take it all in. I wouldn't have been nervous. I just would have uh, just would have done my job at the time. Um, um, and uh, Northern Ireland won, so they got through to the World Cup, so everyone was happy. Did you have a particular style back then? Or, like, who would have... What photographers, presumably, was outside of sport, first of all, but what photographers would have inspired you or, or would have had a style that that you would have thought that's something that I'll kind of try and replicate? Yeah, there was a couple of sports photographers I really admired. Um, one was a fellow called Eamon McCabe, who worked for The Observer, another guy called Chris Smith, uh, who worked for The Sunday Times. Um, and they took brilliant, brilliant features shots. Um, and I always would have aspired to be like them. Um, I just thought they were different. I just thought mm. they got moments that other people didn't get. Um, outside sport, there was, a few, there was a few people that really inspired me. On an international level, somebody like Sebastian Salgado, uh, who just managed to take photographs of people, uh, just got moments that other people didn't get. Um, um, and I had a huge admiration for his photographs. Um, a local photographer, interesting, was a guy called Tony O'Shea, um, who was, uh, uh, if he'd been in any other country, he actually would have been world class. Um, but there wasn't the outlets for his work, but he did social documentary stuff in Ireland. Um, and I just loved his timing on photographs. So I was a great admirer of him. So anything like that was always a... Uh, those people, uh, you know, if I could replicate that in any way or aspire to that, it, that was my ambition at the time. You uh, you mentioned Vincent Brown at McGill there, and maybe one of the most famous articles of McGill, not even from a sporting perspective, but overall, was that feature that they did on the Dublin team of the 1970s, uh, charting just how successful they were on the field and then off the field in a variety of different professions. And you captured Kevin Heffernan in the dressing room for that uh, really, really iconic photograph, the iconic photograph of Heffernan and maybe by extension his team of the jerseys being hung in the background. I think a lot of our listeners will no doubt have seen it before. Um, and that it was that that was kind of around the time you were starting Info, was it, or just before you were starting Info? Yeah, it was around about the time. Um, uh, so that the, was probably a big that that photograph in itself was kind of a, a bit of a turning point for you, was uh, it? No, or? Yeah, it was good to get it. I mean, there was a great atmosphere in the Sunday Tribune. Uh, they were really interested in good photographs. That was led by Vincent, but but everybody in the Tribune, um, they were trying to replicate what the Observer or the Sunday Times would have done, certainly in the sports. Um, so there was a great sort of freedom, and David Walsh. Um, who obviously has gone on to bigger and better things now with Lance Armstrong, was a, um, a, a journalist in the Tribune at the time, and um, he thought it would be a great idea to go back on that great Dublin team. Um, uh, he wanted to do the articles, and I joined up with him to do the photographs. So, yeah, it was great. Um, so we went around all the all the, um, all the the ex-players. Uh, Kevin Heffernan um, just brought him back to the changing room in Dublin, the old changing room, uh, just put the jerseys up, came in, sat down, did what I wanted, and, and that was it. So... Uh, just a nice uh, the photograph worked because there was it was a changing room and there was a sort of window to the side like there is in a normal changing room and it just gave a, a nice sort of look on his uh, on him so yeah no it was good Did the sports stars of that time have a different attitude to getting their photograph taken? Uh, I don't think the sports stars yeah um, yeah the, uh, yeah um, probably they're not as protected uh, then as they are now um, they would have been more open to, to whatever you wanted. They, they would probably, to a large extent, have, have, have been wondering why you're bothering, you know, mm. because there wasn't that much of it going on. Um, 
um, uh, access was was obviously just a lot better. Um, now you're not going to get that. Um, commercial age, professional age, uh, players who um, are surrounded by not so much agents, but agents certainly hanging around in the background, but just generally people protecting them, you know. Um, they're a bit, uh, especially the, the sort of like rugby players in the last 10 years have changed dramatically. Um, uh, so their environment has changed dramatically. Yeah. And so they would be, um, you know, uh, like uh, just walking up and down the street is difficult sometimes mm. for them. So um, uh, it, it is, uh, um, it has definitely changed. All right. I suppose then the challenge is building up trust with a lot of these players and I have to say, Billy, there's a large proportion of people in this photograph with, uh, in this uh, book with their top off. Uh, <laughs> Which is the ultimate yeah. symbol of trust. Yeah. Dennis Hickey, Rob Henderson, Nathan Hines. Nathan Hines. A lot yeah. of men, bare-chested men in there. That's right. Uh, it's, it's, uh, yeah. And also, I remember our pre-promotional shot or promotional shot for the TV series, Simon right. Hick also had his top off. Yeah. But well, no, in fairness, not, not everyone's an egomaniac like yeah. Simon <laughs> Hick. So, uh, yeah, how do you convince uh, the likes of Dennis Hickey to, that it's a good idea for him to take his top off? Um... Uh, athletes are actually are very proud of themselves. <laughs> you know, they're very proud of their bodies, um, as, as was Simon. <laughs> um, so, if you can actually convince them to show it off, they're, they they actually think it's great. Um, I mean, there isn't. A, I mean, there's a couple of photographs <laughs> of, of uh, but they, they were all delighted to do it. Um, it's it's a matter of uh, convincing them that why you're doing it, um, and uh, you know, make them feel like it's their decision. Um, so. You know, I never had any problem with um, uh, with any of the pictures that that the men are half naked. Um, <laughs> Rob Henderson was great. He was uh, he was all up for it. Um, uh, you know, um, I spent a whole morning naked, not not me naked, just <laughs> him, him naked uh, in his house down in. Uh, that is in a the... that is a method, though. I believe <laughs> sometimes yeah, right. naked, just so everyone's relaxed, that's comfortable. Right. Make, make, it's not something you've <laughs> make him feel at home. No, no. <laughs> no, no, see, I'm not really that proud of my body, so it wouldn't have worked. Um, so yeah, uh, Nathan Hines. Uh, you know, with a baby, with his, I knew he had a, a, a well, I think that his baby or young child was about a year, a year and a half. Um, the idea of, of a father and son, you know, together, um, I think um, he, he would have really liked it. Mm. Um, I think uh, women would have really liked it, you know, mm. that sort of uh, uh, thing. Um, and and, the, and Dennis Hickey, that, that one was actually, wasn't taken, maybe it was taken by Patrick Bolger, but again, uh, you know, he, Dennis Hickey was a fine, fine specimen of, of manhood, so it wasn't a problem. <laughs> it's also, I think, a lot of my favourite photographs, like you were saying, what you attempted to do was find moments that people don't usually get. And like it's the moments, uh, like a lot of those profile shots, but also the likes of Sonia being in the back of a car after the 2000 uh, Olympics looking at the, the yep. newspaper, like the... Um, New, the Ireland dressing room after 2001 after yeah. the New Zealand game so are they becoming uh, increasingly more difficult to get? Uh, yeah they are becoming more uh, increasingly difficult to get to get that sort of access but they are actually the most rewarding times mm. um, uh, action photography is brilliant nowadays right the standard is unbelievable um, uh, cameras are, are brilliant I mean our cameras Canon are fantastic um, um, but there's a sameness about it in the action stuff. So when you get behind the scenes um, and the sort of more intimate moments, that's actually what makes it uh, worthwhile for me. So um, to be sort of behind the scenes with the Irish rugby team, um, um, you know, spending time with them in, in a sort of more intimate moments um, has always been really rewarding. I mean, sorry, but yeah, but I mean, it's say in photography or in documentary filmmaking, they say that the, the key thing is to make yourself invisible. 
as a photographer, as a filmmaker, whatever. Is that is that kind of the key to getting moments like that, those unguarded moments? Yeah. Invisible would be great, but it's not possible. Mm, Um, But uh, for me, it's actually just to get that element of trust. Um, So you're actually part of it uh, without them worrying that you're there. Um, And that does take time. Um, I mean, I've spent a lot of time with the Irish rugby team. um, And I'd I'd like to think that they actually don't mind me being around um, and they would also trust me. It's not a matter of... um, it's not a matter of friendship. I mean, I've never developed uh, any serious friendships with anybody uh, in the sports world. Um, Are you I, conscious not to do that? I, I, yeah, I don't know whether I'm conscious not to do it. I've just never f- felt the urge, to be honest. You know, mm. I mean, I, I think um, um, they're, uh, uh, I mean, I have huge admiration for loads of sports people. Um, but I think uh, sometimes, and I think journalists would agree this, if you become too friendly with, um, with a sports person, you're sort of overstepping the line a bit. Um, and uh, for me, it's it's to get to the point of trust where they understand that you're not trying to set them up, um, but you're not going to uh, sort of you know make them look foolish or anything. Mm. Um, and they trust you to be there. I mean, I've had to, uh, you know with the Irish rugby team. I mean, I've had to to do various things like I've, I've uh, had to sing on the team bus, um, <laughs> uh, which which was really difficult, um, just to actually sort of get in and feel part of it and so on. So. Uh, but but that is the most that is very rewarding though when you get to that point. But even when you've built up those relationships, I was reading in the Times on Saturday. In Maliki Clerkin wrote wrote an article, and he referred to the photograph that you took of Brian O'Driscoll, or you were focused on Brian O'Driscoll for those last uh, heartbreaking thirty seconds. Yeah. And that obviously you would b- have built up a relationship with Brian. You photographed him, you know, back in back in two thousand two thousand and one. Mm. So. Is that kind of difficult? Do you have to you have to just stick to your guns in that regard? If he's annoyed and he kind of wants you to get away at that point, which yeah. he seemed to want to do, yeah. um, are you comfortable? No, it's snapping it, away. It's interesting that because, um, like, I mean, anyone who's at the All Blacks match it was an amazing match, mm. um, and and at the end of the game, it was all going to be for me anyway. The fact that Brian Driscoll had never um, beaten at the All Blacks, so I just moved in close in on the bench, and um, yeah, he told me to to get out <laughs> or out of the way. Um, and I just had to make a decision. Like, was I going to stay there, right? Now, he was just about to explode with, with joy yeah. if they won. You could see yeah. it. You could see it in his, in his body language. He was, he was if, if the final whistle had gone, he just would have, you know, just, I say, would have been extraordinary photographs. So I thought to myself, split second decision, uh, no, I'm going to have to stay here, you know. I, mm. I, I, I can't just, um, you know, just go away here. It's just too important. So... Um, now, yeah, that's just the way it goes. I mean, you, you have to read a situation, and there has been times where where I've been in a difficult situation and been told, um, you know, could you go, could you leave? And there's no problem. I, I would do that. You know, I, I, it's a matter of reading the situation. But in that particular one, uh, it was just too uh, vital. And then, of course, they lost and mm. didn't even get my photograph. Mm. <laughs> I read that you saying that nothing beats the, um, you know, the buzz of the first major event that you've gone to, the Tour de France you, you've written about and also you, you've spoken about the 86 World Cup and all these sorts of events and uh, what you felt covering those events for the first time. And I kind of thought sport, I suppose the beauty of sport in a lot of ways is the unpredictability of it and how you can still get occasions like Brian O'Driscoll and the, uh, the All Blacks game the last day and the, the kind of the, the drama of that. So do you still get the same enjoyment out of covering these events or it kind of seems a little bit sad that maybe it's... it's uh, it's not as much fun as it used to be. Uh, yeah, it's it's like uh, the first of anything, like the first pint, your first kiss, your first whatever, you know, you just remember it. And uh, 
Um, the first time I went to some bigger sports events, um, it was just exhilarating, you know. Um, to compare it with something like the All Blacks match, it's a different, it's a different, uh, it's a different thing because, yeah, I mean, the All, the, um, the All Blacks match was amazing. If that had been my first match, it would be really, <laughs> really amazing. Um, um, but it's just a different thing. I mean, I was totally absorbed in the All, All Blacks match, loved it and everything. But mm. I just remember going to events for the first time and just wondering why and how I was there. Um, and um, I, I always find with our photographers, um, when you're sending them off, when they first arrive and then you send them to uh, their first um, market, it might be a, a sort of a League of Ireland match. And they're just absolutely delighted to be going to a League of Ireland mm. match. Um, um, uh, and then they move up the scale and, and go to bigger and bigger things. And then they start taking it a bit for granted. Uh, um, when we send photographers to the Olympics, the first Olympics is always the best for the photographers because they're just so delighted to be there, so enthusiastic, and they'll just do anything. And then they realize uh, second time what hard work it is. Mm. So it's a bit more difficult. But, uh, I mean, my memory of, of some of the first events that I did, um, like Tour de France in 1985, uh, just being there and just seeing the whole thing was just amazing. Um, being in Mexico in 86 and at a Brazil-Spain game, I'm thinking, you know, what am I doing here, you know? So... Um, I've, I've said this to a few people, but if I if you could bottle that and sell it, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd do really well. So. Why did the first Tour de France stand out for you so much? I don't know. I, I, um, I think uh, some of it is to do with you see the things on telly, and then you go there, and it's just completely different. Um, um, and uh, this, I always love the Tour de France. The Tour de France is a sort of gastronomic journey through France <laughs> and the French culture. <laughs> And it's just so French, um, and the people on the side of the road, and so on. And um, uh, like to be in France in uh, in um, July, and the weather's really good. And uh, the very first day I was there, the guy who was driving the car asked me where I wanted to stop, and I had no idea. He said, "Well, okay, let's stop here." So we stopped in the middle of this sort of thing, and there was there was n- nothing came for a long while, and then they have this sort of caravan that comes before it, which gives out free things. And then there's usually a pause of maybe about five minutes, and then the peloton comes. comes. And this. Uh, this almost like an animal, uh, you know, the peloton mm. came over the hill um, and just went past. And I went past in maybe fifteen or twenty seconds. But uh, the sort of click, click of the of the, the the bicycles and the sort of power. And then there was Bernard Hino and there was Stephen, Stephen Roach and uh, Sean Kelly and and I just I was just amazed. I just amazed, you know. So uh, um, now I actually went on about nine Tour de France <laughs> in the end. Um, but that first day stands out as an absolute memory for me, you know. Is there any one photograph in here uh, of your own that you're most proud of? Uh, I'm proud of most of them, to be honest. Um, there's a few w- 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 where we've taken a, a bit of care um, to get somebody to do something. Um, in other words, we're left, we're start off with a fairly ordinary situation and we turn it into something different. Uh, that, for me, is the most satisfaction. Uh, the action shot's great. Uh, I mean, I have one there of Paul Gascoigne, which has got a lot of publicity and stuff. Mm. Technically, it's actually not that brilliant a picture. Uh, it's just somebody crying at a, at a soccer match. But um, it became sort of iconic because um, Paul Gascoigne became what Paul Gascoigne became. Um, so um, for me, the, the the photographs that, that as I say, I, I've had a bit of, you know, I've actually cajoled somebody. There's, there's one of Jamie Heaslip in there um, where I got, I got him to tear his T-shirt. It was the week after Ireland played South Africa and he'd torn his jersey and he had to rip it mm. off near the end of the game. And, of course, the crowd all went, hey. Um, so he thought I'd photograph him, you know, ripping a T-shirt. So I approached him and, first of all, he said yes. And then when we actually went to do it, he said no. 
Do you know I, why he said that? Well, no, I said, I said, well, why? And he said, oh, no, the lads, basically, they'll slag me off, right? Because this is, you know. Um, so I said, okay. Uh, so we, we said we take some more, fo- we take some other photographs, and then we see we'll have another chat. Then so we took some other photographs. They were actually quite good, and then I was just talking to him, and um, I have great admiration for Jamie. I think he's actually a, a little bit um, uh, left field, a little bit more, you know, he's an intelligent man. So I, I tried to appeal to hit that side of him, saying, um, um, you know, actually I think you're a bit more interesting and different and you know like, can we just do this once and he went oh, all right right <laughs> so we just did it um i think we had two shots of it we had two t-shirts <laughs> so they were, he ripped both of them uh i appeared in the paper and of course then the lads really slagged them off so uh, it was, <laughs> you really uh, screwed him over there yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah but again like he he would have he would have yeah he would have sort of said oh no the lads but actually i think secretly you know he, he liked it you know so yeah brilliant listen the book's called heroes uh it's Perfect Christmas present, Murphy. Someone well, say. I mean, I don't I, wanna... yeah, well, listen. There's no point in over-egging it, but it, the treat is the treat, Mark, and that's a pretty good Christmas present right there. So yeah, gets our thumbs up on here. Billy Stickland, thanks a million for coming into us. Great, thanks a lot. Shane Curran with the kick out. The 42-year-old goalkeeper turning it out from goal. Here he comes. He topped it. He fought it. He's 50 yards out from goal. What a day for us, coming. All the mother niggas lame, and you know it now. When the real nigga hold you down, you're supposed to drown. Bam. 1944 is the last time a senior tiger come out of here. And the one, 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 one be the last one. Bam. What a day for us coming. Leave a pretty girl sad. We're going to tell you how to get your hands on some free copies of Heroes a little later in the show. Murph, what are your standout photographs? Yeah, well, there, there are two photographs uh, kind of facing each other uh, that I really, really like. They're both black and white. One is of a very old gnarled looking hurler's hand holding a slither from I think 2000 or something like that and then facing that on the opposite side is a black and white photograph from the Donegal All-Ireland Celebrations in 1992 yeah, it's brilliant. and uh, it's in a you know a real old style country bar and there's a man at the, ba- at the bar but you can't actually see his head because his head is stuck entirely in the Sam Maguire mm. uh, drinking deep from the great chalice. We were actually talking about this yeah. uh, last week. Now, I presume it wasn't filled with whiskey, as our German friends were suggesting, but yeah. more sort of the punch, you know, sort of a little mix and gather them of everything. Yeah, they're great but photos. They kind of look almost like they're from Viking times, which obviously is implausible, but that's just how they look. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, the, book is, uh, the book is brilliant, I must say. It's really, really good. It's good hearing some stories behind the photographs as well. Billy also told the story of uh, the photograph in 2001 of Brian O'Driscoll kind of walking on water, stepping yeah, on water, yeah. and uh, how there was basically a really short period of time that he could take that photograph while the tide was, was at the right level. Yeah. So we had he basically stacked up a few books just under the water and got Brian O'Driscoll to stand on it. And then once the photograph had been taken, he had to put Brian O'Driscoll on his shoulders and carry <laughs> him ashore. Couldn't Brian have just taken his shoes off <laughs> yeah, and rolled his trousers up? I mean, but like, carry, carry me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm tired I'll now, need Billy. You to, I'll need you to carry me now, Billy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a little tired. Okay, we're going to chat about one of the big victories of the weekend in just a second. But also a, a victor this weekend, really impressively, was Rory McIlroy, Ken. And something that we were discussing last week uh, when it came to last Thursday about Wayne Rooney and how he kind of took the bait a little bit uh, in reacting to, to some of his uh, Twitter followers last week. Yeah. Uh, we also referred to how it's much, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's actually refreshing that he's giving his own yeah. views as opposed to just reading out the, the corporate Tweets or ha- or corporate messages that, that, yeah. Yeah, corporate. that's yeah, the far more likely interpretation of the, the, the well, Twitter feed. An interesting exchange happened over the last few days, Ken. Yeah, look, what can I say? Um, Rooney had been 
he popped up again a week later to say, this Matthew in I'm a Celeb is really doing my head in. <laughs> snake. Um, but he so is a snake. So that's, I mean, I haven't seen Matthew. He's, he's, <laughs> oh, take it from like Mark. Him. He's a snake. If he's, Mark's saying it, he, he knows. Snake, anyway, says Rooney. Um, but then he, he's suddenly there. Uh, he, something else comes on. He's, there's a, he posts a photograph, and he's out in the golf course, and he says... Uh, and there's quite consistent capitalization, I have to say, in this tweet from Wayne Rooney and uh, good punctuation and spelling. He says, I would take my Ordem ball and at Nike football hypervenoms over a driver any day, comma. Hey, McElroy Rory. To which Rory McElroy responds by saying, uh, not a chance at Wayne Rooney. I'll take my clubs any day. And then a photograph of him hitting footballs <sighs> with a golf club. Uh, I'd just like to say that um, from the point of view of uh, of marketing, that Wayne Rooney's tweet about he would take his Orton ball and hypervenoms, mm-hmm. obviously these are both Nike-sponsored athletes, and uh, I'm uh, pretty sure a Nike, uh, a Nike press officer has written this tweet from Wayne Rooney just by virtue of the fact that there's a comma in the tweet, and he doesn't use commas uh, in normal circumstances. But uh, he's, uh, that this, this tweet by him got 433 retweets, 433 people thought this was interesting enough, this marketing message from Rooney involving McRoy to retweet. But the one about, uh, what's his name, Matthew from I'm Celeb being a snake, got yeah. nearly 6,000. <laughs> so I think people are willing to put up with it, though. You know, uh, just um, by virtue of the fact that he, he'll every so often he'll just call someone who's watching on TV a snake. And people find that much yeah, more, much more interesting yeah, you are, than you are. Uh, Nike, mm, well, I won't say the brand name, football. Carlo manager John Waller joins us on the line now, I'm delighted to say. And John, it was an unbelievable weekend for you personally. Uh, Mount Leinster Rangers won the Leinster title. Your son David scored a cracker of a goal against Liverpool, his first premiership goal. And it was also your 30th wedding anniversary. So first questions first, in what order would you put those three? Well, I think the uh, the achievement of Mount Leinster Rangers on Sunday beating Ollert, um, you know, the first Carlo team to win a Leinster Senior Club Championship after winning the All-Ireland Intermediate two years ago is a huge achievement um, for Carlo Hurling and uh, for the work that Mount Leinster have put in. And, you know, the um, my own family are um, it's very important for our family that David played well on Sunday, which is far more important than how he got the three goals or the three points and the fact he scored um, is a bonus as well, you know. So the, uh, the wedding anniversary comes in a distant third then. Is that what you're saying, John? <laughs> well... You know, myself and my wife are together. We're married 30 years. Uh, we met in college here in UCC and, um, you know, we're going strong and uh, we have a very close-knit family. My daughter is teaching down in Wexford and, uh, you know, we, we all support each other with whatever we're doing. But um, um, sports is priority in our house. <laughs> Good man. It was a really lovely celebration uh, when David took off his shin pad to reveal your names. Did you know that he, he was going to do that? Ah, uh, yeah. Like, he has his, he, he, you know... Uh, I'm his father and I end up on his shin pad but um, you know he puts his mother uh, Stella and his daughter's name on his boots and that and he's very supportive of, of both my wife and my daughter and um, he's very good to them um, on and off the field um, in terms of looking after them and um, he's a good guy and then I end up on his shin pad it's probably not where you'd want to end up but uh, look sure that's what he does and he gets all those things and the manufacturers are obviously delighted with that, you know. Uh, tell us a little bit about the chronology of what happened on Sunday because uh, I was actually flicking back and forth between the two games myself from the comfort of my couch. So I know that the David's goal and the Mount Leinster Rangers game, they finished pretty much at around the same time. So you probably... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, um, all my buddies here in Cork, um, 
that I go to matches with over the summer, they were constantly texting me and um, during the Hull, I was in Hull in the KC Stadium and um, they texted in, it was 5-3 to Aulert at half time, you know, a lot of wides, a lot of freeze, Dennis Murphy was outstanding, so I knew that second half then it was touch and go and then it was Mount Leinster were up a point, they were up two points, then they were up three points and then text came through, MLR had won and then Davey pops in an old goal serve you know what I mean? So it was mighty. Um, it was a mighty afternoon, really. You know. And as Carroll manager, obviously, this is a huge boost uh, to you to have guys like this. Well, I mean, maybe they, they won't be around for the first couple of games of the league, maybe. But it's still, it's a huge boost to the to the to the game in the county. Well, it's a huge boost for for Carlo Hurling. But I think what it says it says an awful lot, a lot about Mount Leinster Rangers. They were, you know, Carlo senior champions about eight times in the last ten or twelve years. They won the All-Ireland Intermediate two years ago. And to win the All-Ireland Intermediate and then to go forward and win after two years to win the Senior Hurling Championship in Leinster is a huge achievement for them. And they're a fantastic club. But more importantly, they have great people. You know, the Cody's, John Cody, Richard Cody, Paul Cody, and above all, Eddie Cody, who was 35. And Eddie epitomises what's best about, about club hurlers, about county hurlers. And fellas in, in, in not-so-fashionable counties where they give it all for their club and they give it all for their county and they ask for very little. And, you know, you have the Burns as well, Hugh Paddy Burns, Derek Burns, uh, Dermot Burns and Eddie Burns, and their father and mother are heavily involved in the club as well. So you, you have a huge um, club there in Boris and it's on the borders of Wexford and Kilkenny, so a lot of Holland people there and uh, it's a fantastic achievement for them. Tashan, do you get over to see David playing much for Hull? I have to. <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah, yeah. I life revolves around Saturday and Manchester Airport and <laughs> wherever we're going from there or Stansted Airport. And um, I wish to God Michael O'Leary would would start operating three flights from me from Cork. <laughs> so yeah, wherever the match is on, you have to plan plan accordingly and um, you try and get over. And it's 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 a long day. It starts at half five in the morning and finishes probably half eleven on a Saturday night. But you know, it's, it's support for David, but it's also support for the likes of Robbie Brady, um, Paul McShane, Stephen Quinn, all those. And, you know, I've become friendly with Robbie's dad, Shea Brady, who's a super guy. And, you know, you meet the families and that's one of the nicer things then. And, you know, they're all really nice guys, the two Spurs guys, ex-Spurs, Tom Huddleston and Livermore, good guys. And, you know, Bruce has brought in a very good fabric there, a very good culture in there of guys who want to play and have got a positive attitude. And uh, what's your attitude then to David when you when he um, you know he plays and obviously maybe you have a word with him afterwards and do you then uh, viciously criticise his performance <laughs> or do you do you take the kind of Earl Woods approach or or are you one of those no, pat on the back people? No, you know you know in your heart and soul. Um, there were a couple of matches, a couple of weeks ago, the Spurs League match and the Spurs FA League Cup match, and he was absolutely excellent in those two games. So there's very little to talk about after the game, except they were beaten in both and. Well, they were beaten in the League Cup 8-7 on penalties and then you go down to Southampton and they were beaten 4-1 and, and there's very little to say there because he knows what I'm going to say to him and then you come home and you watch it on the DVD and you play it back and you play it back and you just say you know one or two particular incidences in games where you should have been here you should have been supporting and you know there was one or two things in the Liverpool match where Coutinho got on the ball and and you know, Gerard made a run and, and um, he just stepped inside a half yard inside David, but Figueroa came across to, to clear the ball. So, you know, one or two things, you have to be consciously aware of the, you know, the third, fourth guy that's 
running off the ball. It's a bit like snooker in a way. So, you know, just little things that you can see, you know. Has that always been your approach then? I mean, I'm thinking back to when uh, David was a kid, you know, and you're driving back from, from a match or whatever. Are you one of these fathers who's saying, you know, David, you did okay, but you can do a lot better and then going through all of the uh, other things you should have done? Yeah, yeah but... But in any game that, that you do, any game that you look on with your own child, you, you can only pick out one or two points. So you, you pick out the really good, positive things, and that's in any sport, even with teams that I'm involved in. You know, we we uh, were really good at times there, but except for one or two incidences, and then you pick that out. And um, you know, I I say that to him like that. Gerard got half a yard on him, and it could have only for Figueroa coming across it clear the ball he could have been in trouble so little small little things and you know you're going to see that tomorrow night against Arsenal where you've Wilshire Ozil and, and Ramsey in midfield like, and that's going to be quick like, and um, so you know he's got to respond to those situations and, and be aware of it and trying to make make him you know to be proactive really and so anticipate what's going to happen you know That's interesting now John I remember reading in Johnny Giles's book uh, his dad was obviously a big football man and would talk to him a lot about the game and so on. But as time went on and Giles became more and more experienced, he found he disagreed with more and more of what his dad said. Until eventually, I think he snapped one day when his dad was talking about what a great player Glenn Hoddle was. And I think Giles turned around and, said, and told him to shut up and basically, you don't know anything about the game. Has that moment come, has that moment come with David Jeffery? He's turned no, around and said... And it, ha- it hasn't, and if it comes... And, He'll and be in I trouble. Always, I'm always, no, I always say to him, I said, Dave, look, if, if, if I'm born the pants off you... Uh, I'm annoying you. Um, just let to let me know, and uh, we call it a day. And 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 he said, no, that won't happen. Yeah, but you have to be totally honest, and he knows. He knows I'm honest, if, if anything. And um, I tell the truth, and um, and that's it. And when he plays well, um, you don't have to tell him after the Liverpool match on Sunday. You know that was good. And my my own father, Lord Emerson, he would have treated me the same way. He was never one to give out plaudits and whatever, but he would have told me in two seconds. You know. I wonder, John, actually, when when he when it kind of became obvious that he was going to go down the soccer ro- uh, road, did you have any regrets over that? No, I had no regrets. But what I did say to him was that he was in school in Bruce College here in Cork, and uh, they rang me one morning and they said uh, David didn't come in this morning. And I said, No, he he left for school, and actually he came home at four. And I said, You went to school, and he said, No, I'm gone full time with Cork City, and it caused a lot of hassle at home within the house for about 10 days and you know guys sitting he's leaving search what's up here and so um i sat him down i said if you're going full-time you're going full-time there ain't no coming back at this and you know you're 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 not going to fail and you have to succeed so here a couple of the home suits and and they were often nights like that after matches where you don't get a game you're a sub you're not in the squad and they can be tough and they can be the really hard times where you have to tell the truth sometimes as well, you know. Well, goals against Liverpool make it all worthwhile, I'm sure. John, we wish the Milers loads more brilliant weekends like that. Thanks a million for talking to us. Thanks a million. It's not exactly Abe Simpson territory, but it seems John isn't too shy in telling David exactly what it thinks, <laughs> what he thinks of his performances, is he? Well, I mean, you know, you either, you know, placate the child or you ask the child to get better and you provide the child... With detailed analysis. Yeah, with the circumstances around which he can continuously pursue excellence. Mm. I think that's what John Myler is doing here. No, nothing, nothing more, nothing worse than that. And most, um, most people who do become successful professional sportsmen will always, uh, if, if their parent was so minded, will always credit the parent with having helped them 
along the road. But of course, there is a selection bias there. You only tend to hear from the people who did become successful. You don't hear about the infinitely larger number of people <laughs> who didn't become successful and whose relationships with their parents may have been poisoned at a, at a pretty early age by the parents' excessive uh, pushiness in the, in the Department of Sports. I mean, I suppose there's all, all, all those kind of untold stories. For every David Myler uh, out there, there's probably a thousand uh, embittered uh, people walking around outside uh, who still kind of feel surges of anger towards their uh, father when they think back to their youthful experiences playing football. <laughs> Coming up at 6pm tonight. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. You walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You well, we've been talking a lot about the Milers, uh, but we haven't really discussed the club that they're playing for, which is uh, Hull City at the moment. Very antiquated sounding. Hull City. Great relationship yeah. between all the parents there, though, it seems. All the parents. Yeah. Oh, the parents. The parents get on really well. The players, a great bunch of lads. But the owner, it's a higher, it's higher fans, up. Yeah. So the owner said the fans could could die whenever they like, die whenever you want, because their their <laughs> their fan group is called City Till We Die, and uh, he's essentially encouraging them to die, uh, or at least to get off the premises, because they don't want their club to be called the Hull Tigers. No, they're really against that. Mm. They're and really against see that. where they're coming from. Well, honest. we're gonna we're gonna talk to one of them later on just to see why it is. Is it really that big a deal? I mean, I'm not sure. We can see the same thing happening with Cardiff in the Premier League where they changed from blue to red and at the instigation again of a wealthy foreign owner who just thought blue was crap. <laughs> just I didn't like blue. Red is much better. Red is, uh, is, a, is a colour that I can market more successfully around the world. Same with Hull Tigers. Uh, we're also going to talk a little bit about uh, Villas-Boas who's going to Fulham um, tomorrow with Tottenham to play against... Uh, well, to, he, it's him against René Moulinstein, the new full manager he's just taking over so mm. pretty interesting game there we might also get a chance to talk about the man who's doing more to undermine David Moyes' first four months in charge of Manchester United than anyone else hopefully Roberto Martinez whose Everton team are about <laughs> twice as good as David Moyes' best yeah. ever Everton team yeah it's uh, it's getting a little embarrassing isn't it it is a little bit um, but you know it's, it's, it's all good for him I mean David Moyes never had a player like Lukaku I think is a big difference but yeah, we'll, we'll talk a bit about that. OK, we mentioned at the start of the show that as things stand, Ireland are almost certainly not going to be sending a men's sevens team to compete in Rio in 2016. Our women's team made their, debu- uh, their Dubai sevens debut last weekend and received funding from the IRFU and the Sports Council to do so. And their Olympic qualification campaign has thankfully, it's already begun. But to us, it seems a little strange that in a variation of one of the sports that we're best at in this country, we decide not to allow a men's team to take part at all. So uh, to talk about this, we've got Keena Hearn, a former Ireland sevens international and current Lansdowne player who's been campaigning for a long time to get an IRFU team back in action. He's in the studio. How are you doing, Keen? Well, how's it going? And Alan Quillen also joins us. Alan, if we can start with you. Um, you were over at your first Hong Kong Sevens last year, I think, and seemed pretty blown away by the whole spectacle. What made you think that it was something we need to get involved in? Well, I think I was in, in Hong Kong. It was just it was just phenomenal, the, the party, the atmosphere, the whole brand of Sevens, I think. Um, you know, rugby is growing uh, all the time in, in Ireland, in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, you know, we're probably 15, 16 years in, 16 or 17 years into professional rugby um, in the nor- in, throughout the world. So I think sevens is something that, um, you know, it's attractive to watch. Um, it, you know, you can work on all the different skills. It'd be great for young players coming through. 
and uh, it's it's something that you know is marketed in the right um, if it's marketed in the right way it can be a success it can attract um, you know people who are not you know people who just go for a, um, can go there for the day and enjoy the the fun the atmosphere around us and you know there's not as many rules and regulations in the sevens um, so it's it's something that can be a global brand sevens um, sevens rugby. I saw that firsthand in Hong Kong, the whole party, the whole atmosphere, the whole setup around us, and the whole roadshow really traveling around the world it's been a huge success and you know it is a shame that Ireland are not involved in that um obviously there's factors that that um you know maybe stop Ireland having a sevens team, but it's just a shame from uh, kind of from a rugby point of view and from uh, seeing it firsthand and um, that it's disappointing because we have a lot of young players coming through and I think it would it would certainly help them, develop them. Um, you know, you can talk about the factors if you want, uh, why why it isn't happening. Mm. Um, you know, numbers, playing numbers, funding. Um, I think that playing numbers are probably the big thing and, and just managing uh, professional teams here in Ireland with the provinces and, and that whole transition of releasing players and, and uh, you know, so it's something that's with Rio coming up, um, it would be brilliant to have a sevens team going forward and going to Rio and, um, you know, going to the Olympics. But um, there is pressures and factors there, which I'd love to see us overcome and even develop more and, and look at overcoming those factors um, in the future. Yeah, and we'll talk about those in a little bit more depth in a second. But Keen. Um, you played with the likes of Keith Earls and Felix Jones and the Irish Sevens teams a few years ago. Um, talk to us about what the latest situation is at the moment. It's it's almost certain that we're not going to be going to Rio, isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly what it seems like. Um, I spoke to the director of the RFU and he said... That's Eddie Wigglesworth. Yeah, Eddie Wigglesworth. He just said that you know there's no plan in place really for a team to go to the Olympics in 2016, maybe beyond that, but... Uh, even if, he, as I said, I kind of in a couple of articles or whatever, that even if I'd raised the money or if we'd gotten a body together to raise the money for a team for 2016, that they wouldn't grant consent for that. Team. Well, we'll t- let's just talk about what Eddie Wigglesworth reasoning uh, is. It's sure. it's all primarily just down to money, is it? Uh, he said money. He mentioned WADA and insurance as well. And the other impression I got as well uh, in a recent article as well in the paper was that we don't have the standard of player as well, that we don't have the depth of player in Ireland to be able to not embarrass ourselves on an international level, I think. Is that, yeah, that seems place. completely unbelievable when you see you look at our world ranking at 15s. Now, and you can tell us that 7s is different to 15s and all the rest, but there is a culture of rugby in this country far greater than in any other country in the world, bar seven other countries. Mm. So to say that we don't have the depth to put together a 7s team seems... Totally bizarre to me, really. You should even look at the top 30 rugby playing nations in the world. We're the only team, the only country without uh, males' development sevens uh, structure. So. Alan, what system would you ideally like to see put in place? Are you talking about selecting a full-time team that will compete throughout a seven season? Are you talking about using the, some of the academy's players, some club players, university players? What, what sort of system do you think could actually work? Well, I, I, to be honest, I'd probably... Um you know, I'd really have to look in depth into that to get the right system. It's, I think, there are the challenges I was talking about. You know, we have 120 or 30 professional players in the country. They're all contracted to the provinces. Then you have your academy players, your development players, um, and then you have your, 
you know, players in the amateur game, which, you know, I think there's, there could be tons of guys in the amateur game could step up and play uh, professional sevens and play on that circuit. So the challenge is, you know, getting a full-time team together because I don't think you can just put a group of guys together and and send them to, uh, you know, send them to Rio and, and, and expect them to compete with the other teams who were on that circuit for a number of years. I think Wales are a prime example of someone who, a, a nation who's made huge progress in the last number of years. There was a certain amount of resistance. And it's it's probably a model that we can look at and say that, you know, we can, we can get to that stage at some st- um, in the future, at some stage in the future, that, um, you know, if there is enough support within, within Ireland for a seventh team, if there's enough people pushing it. Because um, I suppose the challenge for the IRFU is the international team, getting the 15th team competing and... Um, that's what funds the game in Ireland. Um, well, you know, Alan, the look, IRFU's argument is just quite simply that it's going to take money away from the 15s. It's going to, I think they're looking at a figure of one million a year, which was quoted by Eddie Wigglesworth. So it's quite simple. If that money goes into sevens, our uh, international team suffers. And that's 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 the issue. You know, you probably need, as Keen mentioned there, an external group or, or some businesses or someone to come on board and say, look, or even business people to, to kind of run it as a, as, as a separate entity, if you like, um, under the IRB guidelines and, 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 you know, the umbrella of the IRFU, but maybe run it as a separate business. I think as a business module, it could be something that's, 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 uh, that's workable. Um, you know, I think you look at the, all the other nations, you look at the excitement around Sevens, and I think the big thing with Sevens is it can become global across Asia. Um, it's massive as well. Mm. Um, and, you know, so many people playing it. And, and certainly commercially, you can, you, can, you can put it out there as a brand that, that people want to get interested in and, and uh, it could generate money and funds. As I said, the IRFU, you know, you have to look at this logistically. number of players we have, the finances... Um, will it affect the other game? You have the logistics then of the provinces. If you have academy guys, development guys, or even guys, you know, down at that level, they still their boss then is still the provincial coach, you know. And if he wants guys playing club matches or staying to fifteen, or you know, you have you have an awful lot of logistics and a lot of communication breakdowns and stuff like that along the way with it. So it's something I'd love to see, but there's certainly a lot of work and there'll be a lot of planning to to, to put in place. Yeah, it does seem strange, like you said, Keen, of the top 20 nations in the world in rugby, we're the only one that doesn't have a sevens team. Alan mentioned the, the Wales structure and actually the Scotland structure as well. It seems that a lot of funding comes from their own individual sports councils. And from Scotland's perspective, they were going to pull out of the seven series as well, but they have a seven series event every year on in Scotland that helps to fund um, their own sevens team and their, their full-time uh, professional sevens team. Mm. So from your perspective, what's the, what would be the ideal scenario? How do you see a sevens team working? Is it through funding from the sports council and the Olympic council potentially for uh, to, to, to develop this as an Olympic sport? Or what, what is your own ideal model for it working? Um, yeah, well, I, I think any, any model going forward, like as Alan said, a business model, an external entity coming in to fund an Irish sevens team could be perfect. It would take the financial strain off the RFU's back and you know a team could operate based on sponsors, external funding and even whatever whatever interest the sports council and the Olympic Council have of putting anything towards it as well. But why not look at every means possible rather than just kind of shutting it down from the start? Is that is that in ways the most frustrating thing that instead of looking at ways to make it work, maybe you're hitting 
uh, it appears that there's not really the will there as opposed to not not really yeah. the means. Absolutely. Like, you know, you go in with like five or six different ideas for ways that you can kind of work around it and get a squad together. And rather than being met with, well, that mightn't work, but maybe if we change that, that could work. It's just being met with, no, that's not going to work. No, that's not going to work. No, that's not going to work. So I there's no. What needs to happen is, is um, someone takes the initiative and puts a plan together and tries to develop that plan, gets a group of people together who, inter- who are interested in sevens, try and present to the union because, um, you know, as I said, they have to, and, and this sounds like I'm sticking up for the union. I'd love to see a sevens team. I would love to see it. I'd love to have some involvement in it. I think it's just brilliant fun. It would really enhance our, our, the individual skills of players. So I'm all for it. The IRFU, I think they need someone to sit down, present a plan, a process, potential sponsors. And I think they would get behind it then. Um, the logistics of it, again, is the player releasing the players, all that stuff. But you could take a model where you, you, you start it very small, where you take 30, 40 players and you put them on a program, even a part-time program, but they all work or in a college, whatever they do, and try and develop them into better players and, and slowly introduce them into that seven system. And, uh, you know, I think that's what needs to happen is someone needs to take the initiative here and have a plan in place, present the business model. And, uh, you know, I had even guys in last year after I, I spoke about... Um, the sevens and you know being pro sevens i think uh, i had one or two businessmen you know wanted to sit down and talk about it we we had some chats about it and it kind of fizzled out a little bit um that they were interested and they're still interested in in, in doing something so i think there is people out there who are pro the sevens it's very attractive to watch um and it could be you know it could bring a new dimension or new excitement to uh, to rugby in ireland when you talk about that model, I've actually been approached by a number of businessmen as well since a couple of articles have gone out. And we are looking at coming up with that kind of a business structure of getting a squad together. So an initial kind of way of looking at it when you're talking about that 30, 40 squad of players, we're thinking of approaching universities and looking at the sports scholarship structure in universities and maybe the possibility of uh, honing Olympic athletes through the university structure then taking maybe players from clubs who aren't committed to any kind of provincial contracts and then letting the RFU use the Sevens platform as well for whatever uh, group of players they feel might need a bit of experience, perhaps in like big stadiums or competitive atmospheres, that kind of thing, and they can put in whatever academy or development players they want in that as well. What are your thoughts on a model like that, Alan? Yeah, it's something that's, that could definitely work. I think having the universities on board and the scholarships is a very, very good idea. Um, there's so many athletes and, and guys who, who might even be playing rugby at the moment that suddenly they might be good at athletics or good at something, other sports, and they might want to get involved. And suddenly you, you, can, you could find new players. You could find uh, new athletes, if you like. And uh, certainly you know, having the universities involved would be very, very important, I think. And, and very, um, you know, it gives you that structure that, that you have the facilities to train, um, and I think uh, it's something that could work, yeah, for sure. But I think, as I said, it it needs to be put together. It needs to be put down. It's like any business, uh, and it is a business because, you know, at the end of the day, we love our sports, but professional 15s in Ireland, uh, it's a business. The country, uh, the provinces, you know, they're all under pressure financially. they got to pay all the, um, you know, uh, get revenues in, sponsorship, numbers, uh, bums on seats and all that stuff. So, 
it's all a business, so you got to put this down as a business model and a module and uh, and try and present it in that way and hopefully develop it. I think it's you know it's a shame it's too late for Rio now, but it'd be great to see some sort of even an internal circuit in Ireland here to start off with, where you 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 kind of. Um, you know, even if you got the universities playing a sevens league or something like that, or, or competitions, just to develop it that way it would be brilliant. What about as the IRFU say, um, if we're to put a team forward now, or even in the next few years, we get absolutely destroyed uh, on the international stage? Yeah, so like if that happens, it happens. But that's all part of the experience, and that's part of developing players. Like if you look at the results we had four years ago, or two thousand and eight where we weren't necessarily beating every top-class team. The last World Cup, we actually ended up beating Australia in it and losing to Zimbabwe. So you can see us losing games, but winning games as well. And the players that played in that World Cup have now gone on to play for Ireland in the meantime. So losing on a world stage hasn't stopped them from becoming top-class international athletes since, and probably contributed, if anything else. Have you lost all hope for Rio, then? No, like, that's why I'm here, I guess, today, is that there's still two and a half years to go before Rio. And if Ireland are to qualify, there's a European Championship in, I think, 2015, the summer of that, that Ireland need to enter and they need to get a team together, I guess, in the next year and a half in order to be able to compete at that. Last time Ireland competed in the European Championships, they came top four. So I don't see that there's any reason if we get a, a group of players, like Alan said, of 30 or 40 players together now and start training them in, and I don't see there's any reason why not to enter it and actually give it a real go because even as you can see from last weekend, when given the underdog status, Irish rugby players are actually showing themselves to be quite good and capable of meeting that challenge. So Yeah, we better start moving on it quickly though, I think. Uh, Keen, thanks yeah. a million. Alan Quillen, thanks so much for talking to us. My pleasure. That's the question that's going to be answered tonight. Tonight. So now, come here tonight, tonight, into Wexford Park, and they just must produce the goods tonight. Tonight, their team is better set up tonight. Tonight. But they just, the bottom line is, Michael, they have to do tonight. Tonight. Second Captains Football. Available on irishtimes.com, Second Captains, and iTunes from 6 p.m. tonight. Tonight, 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 tonight. Listen, Ken, it seems you're not going to see Brian O'Driscoll with an Olympic gold medal around his neck, so you're just going to have to get over it. It's not going to happen. Um, well, I suppose uh, we have to accept the things we can't change. Has he specifically said he's definitely retired from all Olympic sports, though? I think that his... Please, 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 please stop asking me whether I'm going to retire. I'm retiring next season. I think there's a lot of wiggle room there. You know, I think that there's a significant amount of wiggle room there. So, you know, let's, let's just focus on that. See how that goes for a year. And then we'll give this Rio crack a bit of a shot. And Hesh, it's time for Hesh to get focused as well, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, I think if we get those two on board... Was it, was it him who was on MasterChef, or was it David Gillick? David Gillick. David Gillick. Uh, David, Gillick. Okay. David Gillick, another man. He's from South County Dublin. He was quite good on MasterChef. Could be quite good at rugby as well. Not as it good stands as, to reason. Not as good as Angus McGrainer. He was described by Dylan McGrath yeah. as a genius. Oh, no, no. In fairness, he, he didn't actually say, you're a genius, Angus. He said, you've cooked this with genius. It was a sort of a prawn bisque, and yeah. it actually looked really, really good. So Scrum half-style physique on Angus McGreen as well, who knows? Well, I mean, listen, let's... We let's have to cast the net far and wide, Murph, if we're going to make this thing I happen. Don't think, you I heard think, Keen. Yeah, I don't think the provinces are going to have a major issue if we sign up 
Angus Magrina for this. I don't think that's you know that's not taking anything from their pockets. By the way, our sports book special is now taking place next Tuesday. Owen will be back uh, in the hot seat and will be joined by Malachy Clerken and some very big names in the sports literature world. Uh, in the meantime, we're going to give away five copies of Heroes that we spoke about uh, with Billy Stickland a little bit earlier in the show. If you want one, just use the hashtag Heroes and tweet us at Second Captains, and you can also buy the book uh, at info.ie. Um, that's all from us. We're going to be back at six o'clock. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Mark. Thanks again. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Thanks again. Thank you, Kira. We'll talk to you at six. What is that? It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys.